Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Very excited about this. We're doing uh, part four on the First Love series. I told you guys that I'd be kind of coming to and uh, back and forth on this one. So we're doing one more today, and then I'm gone on holidays. We're going on holidays to Ontario. Looking forward to that. That'll be exciting. And uh, then we're back, and I'll probably do a couple more, and then we, we'll go back and forth. It's all good. We have a whole lifetime, as long as we're here, to keep gathering and to preach the word and to get to know God more. I love that. My prayer is just that you will be blessed by it, but mostly that the Lord will be honored by the, by the way that we respond to him and his word. All right. Um, when we've been talking about first love in the first three, and now we're going to be doing it again in part four, uh, I just want to address some of the common feelings that we might be having. Because some of you I know, because you're reporting, you're just giddy about it and you're excited. But then, you know, you give it a bit of time, and sometimes it almost creates this sense of shame inside. Like, what I really don't want is, you know, this to turn into another, okay, first love. Okay, that's another thing I have to do. Right? I have to do first love. I have to work up this passion inside, this feeling inside, this, right, this joy for the Lord. I just got to like do that. That's a really hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to work up passion inside. And so I don't want this to turn into another thing that you aren't doing. I want you to see it as an invitation. And you might be here when I'm talking about it and saying, well, I get it that you want me to see it as an invitation, but I don't see it as an invitation. I just feel that pressure of what I all need to get done and how I have to keep going. So I want to address some of that today, and that's what we're going to address in part four. Obviously, I can't address it fully, but I'm going to start by looking at, at some of the primary reasons why some of us struggle in that area, and I think it's more common uh, than, than often we realize. So why is it that so many of us desire to love God passionately but feel stuck? Right? You, 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 want to, you want to know God more, like you really do. We've been, you know, in the first three messages, maybe there was something in there. I know a lot of you, uh, you know, gave me feedback or emails and said something was sparked inside. So you have this spark inside and you have, you know, and then we go on to commitments. I'm going to wake up every single morning now, every single morning at this time, I'm going to do it. I'm going to spend time in the Word. I'm going to spend time journaling and prayer. I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to, maybe it's something else. I'm going to intentionally try to love people at work. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to have a good attitude. I'm going to shine brightly for Jesus, whatever it might be. And you find maybe for the first couple of days you can do it, and then it starts to wane, and you have a hard time actually keeping it up. The discipline's hard to follow. Or maybe you just go through the motions, you know, you wake up and you're mechanical about it, but you actually don't find there's a fire burning inside, right? When we read stories of like the road to Emmaus and they talk about, did our hearts not burn? Did our hearts not burn when he was unfolding the scriptures to us? And, and that's, an, that's a foreign concept. It almost just seems like it's flowery language to describe something, but it doesn't really describe a feeling that they felt. So, you know, we want Jesus or we want the Lord to be the source of life, but, you know, Lord, you, and we proclaim it, we worship him. Lord, you are our source of life. We go to you for everything. Everything that we need can be found in you. And then we get stressed and we find ourselves not going to him for everything that we need. We find ourselves distracting ourselves. Maybe it's on here. I've been guilty of that only way more times than I can count, right? Or you go to TV or you go to work, you just get busy. You ever done that? You start feeling that stress inside, so you just need to get busy. You can't slow down. You can't stop. So you just work. You know, th this is a common feeling, I think. We, we stay busy to try to find our value, anxiously running from one thing to the next. You know, if we're honest about it, when we talk about the peace that passes understanding, if we're honest, 
sometimes it feels like anxiety feels more real than peace. Right? Spiritual boredom or, or dryness, this emptiness inside feels more real than what the psalmist says is pleasures, uh, uh, pleasures forevermore found in your presence. Right? Pleasures forevermore found in your presence. Like, what is that? So it seems distant and foreign. So that's what I want to start looking at because sometimes, you know, we can look at this. We can have all the best intentions. We're going to set out. We're going to do this right. Do this right. Right? You hear that? We're going to get this right. And then we, we start going only to be discouraged and give up. We feel like the little flame we have gets extinguished rather than fanned. All right. Uh, if I go back to my salvation story, and this is what we're going to be, not addressing my salvation story, but this will kind of illustrate where I'm going to go from here. Um, I won't share the, the whole story because we don't have time, but right towards the end of, of that salvation story. So I had the first encounter, I'm going to talk about that a little later in the message, where my son was born, where God spoke to me, but I didn't give my life to him yet. I had a powerful encounter with him that actually brought me to tears, created such a longing in me, I wanted him so bad, but I just, I wouldn't say yes. Why? Because I believed a lie about God. I believed that he would only accept me if I would do enough good to make up for what I had done wrong. You see, I was raised in a, in a Christian home. I knew just enough about the Bible and just enough about God to be dangerous, but not enough to be free. That can happen, you know, right? You know, just enough truth, but not enough. And then the enemy takes it and twists it into something else and suddenly you're actually trapped. And this is what happened to me because I knew just enough to know that deliberate sin, I'm pretty sure, is unforgivable. Like if you, if you knew you were, what you were doing is wrong and did it, there is no you know, sacrifice left for that kind of sin. And I, I, I didn't just like think that was true, I felt that was true. In fact, I felt that was true as a young boy. So when my mom got sick and I turned my path against the Lord, I was actually very intentional to do intentional sins to try to spurn God for what he had done, for what I perceived he had done to me. So you imagine my surprise, or you imagine the pain that I'm feeling now years later when I'm wanting to return. I'm wanting to go back, but I feel like there is no way that God would ever accept me the way I am. So it wasn't until he met me, you know, in the industrial park here behind Low and Windows, listening to that CD. I've talked to you about it before. Come just as you are to worship. I'm listening to the song, and the Spirit of God says, Stefan, I know you. I know what you've done. I love you anyways. I want you to come just the way you are. And I melted, right? Because his truth was ministering directly to a lie that I had been believing. But the point that I want to get at here, and that, that's where we're going to start today, is what we believe about God impacts our response to God. What we believe about him impacts our response, and that's exactly why I was trapped. I had that first encounter, I had a good upbringing, but I was trapped. I wasn't responding in faith to that invitation he was giving me. Why? Because I believed a lie about who he was and how he saw me. You know, we've talked about this verse multiple times in the first three. We love because he first loved, right? He, he, he acted towards us, and now we respond to that action, right? So we're loving him because he first loved us. But what if we aren't able to receive that love because we believe a lie? You know, you might be here and you're stuck with an addiction. That, that could be it. There, there's a whole spectrum of people in here. And maybe you're like, oh, you know, I am just on fire for the Lord right now, and I see him in truth. And even to you, I would say, there is more truth to be had. 
we are going to grow in a deeper and deeper revelation of who God is for an eternity. And if that doesn't excite you, let me just say, there is more truth to be had now, so that begins to excite you. Because as he reveals himself to you, you're going to get to a place where you actually long to just worship him forever. That actually sounds like heaven. Oh, wait, it is. That's a wonderful thing. So let's say you're stuck in addiction. So you're trapped in, we're going to say pornography, maybe, maybe alcohol. So you give your life to Jesus and everything's going to be different. Right? You're never going to do that again. And maybe you commit that to your spouse or maybe you commit it to friends or to your family. You're never going to do blank, destructive behavior again. But then you relapse and you have no idea why. Maybe you had a tough day or maybe you had a tough week. Maybe there was a good reason. There's not a good reason, but maybe there was one in your mind like you lost your job. But maybe you can't even think of a good reason. You just couldn't help yourself. And so what do you feel? You, you, you feel torn. You feel, I don't know, you feel overwhelmed. You hate yourself. You just feel overcome with shame. You feel broken. Do you think God loves you? Of course not. You're unlovable. Do you think he wants to be with you? Not a chance. You don't even want to be with you. You think God accepts you? How can he ever accept me? And so you live your life in shame. You pull away from him. You pull away from your family. Instead of drawing near back to the Lord, recognizing that he'll forgive you. If you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. But you feel trapped. Like you can't get there. Or maybe you're on the other, other side where, you know, you're not stuck in an addiction, but you're stuck in your to-do list. And you get everything done. Maybe you, maybe you actually do really well at reading your Bible and praying and resisting, you know, the, the culturally bad sins that we would call them. And so, but you work. You work really hard. You get all your stuff done. Whatever you think that God wants you to do, you do it. And you do it and you keep doing it. But you find actually when you stop doing, you actually feel anxiety building up. The thought of, you know, you read a story like Mary and Martha and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why is Martha always getting a bad rap? Stuff has to get done. And when you stop, you actually feel stressed. So you just keep on taking on more, but you can't. And then one day you miss out, or you miss something, or you fall into sin, or you miss a day or two of your devotions. And you're just overcome with God's disappointment. You're perceived God's disappointment in you. How he no longer accepts you. He accepts you when you're doing, but he doesn't accept you when you're not doing well. Any of these stories sounding familiar? Don't have to raise your hand. I think we can always, you know, probably all of us can relate on some, on some level. Right? On some level, maybe if it's a spectrum like this, somewhere in there we're relating. We get it. Right? We desire to know God more, but for some reason there's something in us that pulls us away. And that's really what we're going to be talking about uh, today. Right? Going back to the uh, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved. This is the catalyst for people coming to Christ. Right? No one comes to Christ except by a response to the Holy Spirit's revelation of Jesus in their heart. Nobody. So we, we need to have that experience with God. The Holy Spirit needs to meet us in here for us to respond. And this continues on throughout our life. Everything we do for him that bears fruit is a response to a revelation of him in our own lives. And that's an important thing. But, you know, what we believe about God's heart towards us is the largest determining factor of how close we will draw near to him and the intimacy we'll share with him. 
So let's take a look a little bit more at uh, 1 John 4. And I, I put 15 to 19 here. Obviously, that's just one verse. I sometimes like to include the whole, you know, the whole section that I wanted to go through but didn't have time. So you can read that on your own. But if you look there, John, uh, verse 15 basically just says, those who believe in God are saved. Those with faith are saved. It's by faith that you are saved, period. Not by works, not by anything you did right or did wrong, not by any of that stuff. Saved by faith. I hope we get that already. But then he goes on to say, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So the fear he's talking about here isn't just your regular, I'm afraid of spiders, which is a legitimate fear. <laughs> yep, amen it is. No spiders in heaven, I bet. Uh, <laughs> at least I hope. Ooh. Or he'll take that part away from me. Anyways, point is, this is a fear of judgment. What do you mean a fear of judgment? So this is people who are afraid of judgment. They're afraid of what? Being rejected by God when they stand before him. Wait a minute. Verse 15 says, if you have faith, you'll be accepted by God. Then he goes on to say, but some are still trapped. They fear that they will be rejected by God. And that's a sign that they need more perfecting in his love. Right? That's, that's lie-based thinking that's keeping them from walking in their inheritance fully. Uh, Matthew 25, we get the parable of the talents. Uh, very, very similar, but here I'm not going to go through the whole thing. You have three, three servants that are called to their master before he goes away on a trip, and he gives them different amounts of talents, five, two, and one. And the first two go away, and they, they get to work, and they double their, double their talents. And the last servant, he goes and hides the talent because he believes, uh, he perceives that his master is a harsh taskmaster, right? So look what he says. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now, the master in this story actually has a very st uh, stern response to him, right? It's a very, very stern response that we should take very, very seriously. But what I love is the master wasn't even expecting that the servant with one talent went and doubled it like those with five and two. He didn't even expect that. He just expected do something. And I think that that's the important thing for us to realize. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. We will stand before him and give an account for our response to the measure of revelation that we had in our hearts. And that's a very important thing for us to understand. So with this guy here, he, had, he was believing lies in his mind about who his master was. He didn't perceive him the way the other two guys did. So you'll see the expectation was actually a lot lower. So you knew me to be harsh, then you should have at least gone and invested what was mine with the bankers so I should have had interest. And so you see that, that the expectation is lower, but Jesus expects that we respond to whatever measure of revelation that we already have had in our lives. That's a very, very important piece. All right, continuing on. There is a process to being perfected in love. And we actually see this in there. Uh, one of the big ones you'll see on uh, number three, because I'll start with three and then go back, right? Doesn't, doesn't that make sense? Yeah. Um, but you'll actually see the biggest part of the process of, of, of being perfected in love is living in love and loving others. So actually loving others and forgiving others, loving those, even those that you hate. It says if you hate your brother whom you can see, you cannot love God whom you cannot. Right? So this is all together. Loving God, loving people. So that's together, together part of how we are perfected in love. But you'll see we also have there. Pursue God. Respond to the love that we have received, that, that revelation. And two, confront the lies in our hearts by renewing our minds. That renewing our minds is found obviously in Romans, but it's actually a, a pattern you see throughout Scripture. Um, and the enemy knows this. You look at 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Now, I want to talk about that last half, but first, did, did you read that first part? How many of you actually today believe that? How many of you believe that God wants to actually lift you up right now? That he doesn't just want to leave you in your despair and hurt and brokenness? How many of you feel that? I'm not talking about an intellectual belief. Do you believe what the Bible says? How many of you believe it here? That he wants to lift you up? How about your anxieties? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's a nice verse. We'll just pass on. Church, do you believe that in here? Do you feel that? Do you think that God cares about the things that you're anxious about? You might say, but yeah, but they're not even real things. I shouldn't be anxious about them. They're, they're bad. I'm not like Paul anxious for the church. I'm anxious about personal things. God doesn't care about that. Really? You don't think he cares for you? The same God who sent his son to die for you? Let that sink in. But that's not the part of the verse I want to focus on. <laughs> Just, I think sometimes, you know, we're talking about truth and lies. What we believe matters. What I believe about God will determine how I respond to him. And I think we would do well to not just gloss over some of these verses. We see it that he wants to lift us up and he wants us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares. He wants to carry my anxiety because he cares for me. That's what the Bible says. But look at the second part now. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, so what a lion does, I don't know a lion, but I would love, by the way, if you're ever going to die by an animal, wouldn't that be an awesome death? Death by large cat. I've dreamt about that since I was a little kid. <laughs> Don't hate me. It's weird. Anyways, this is the bad kind of lion. This is the devil. Okay, so he pr uh, prowls around like a roaring lion. Lions look for... <laughs> Sorry. I probably shouldn't have told you that. There's, that's not even the least of the things that are weird that are up here. <laughs> like, I just gave you a little smidgen. Okay, back to the devil. Okay? Prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is strong language. So he's looking for what? He's looking for the weak, he's looking for the young, he's looking for the old, he's looking for the lame, he's looking for those, those areas in your life where you have cracks in your armor. Well, guess what? We all have cracks in our armor. We were all born as little kids, and there's lots of cracks there, and we're spiritually immature, ripe for the picking for him. So we've got to take that seriously, right? Uh, who is the enemy? Well, Peter is speaking of Satan, which literally translates slanderer. What, well, what is he doing slandering? He's making accusations about God to us. Did God really say, is God really like, I think God's more like this, God's more like that. He slanders God to deceive us. He makes accusations and slanders the Lord on how he sees us, right, about who God is, and then because of who God is, how he must see us. 
And what you'll find is many of us fall for the same patterned uh, self-lies. I am worthless. I don't have value. I'm only what I do. I'm defined by my mistakes. I'm unlovable. Blah, 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 blah. There's lots more. Okay? So, the enemy wants to keep us stuck in our addictions, brokenness, pain, anxiety, discouragement. And ultimately, though, that's just the side, you know, the side fruits. His ultimate goal, to keep you from knowing God. That's his ultimate goal, to keep you from knowing God, right? So we're supposed to, Romans 12, 2 says that we are supposed to, here we go, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is a transformation that needs to happen that we're actually called to engage with God in of the renewing of our mind. Colossians 3 talks about the same thing, right? Right, we're supposed to, and same with uh, Paul in Corinthians, talks about using God's mighty weapons to actually war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Right? So that is part of what we need to actually do to stand our ground about this because what we believe about God impacts how we respond to God. And how we respond, it matters. It does. All right, let's talk about the Father's heart here. Um, there's multiple pictures, and I want to go through in the... I don't know how long we'll stay in the series. We'll go back and forth, kind of like I said. But there's a few other pictures that I want to get at about who God is, because we see Jesus the Son, we see God the Father, we see the, the marriage analogy given, there's, and there's others, right? And I want to go over them, they're all important, but the one I want to focus on for the remainder of today is God the Father. Because God the Father, that image is very important for us in how we respond to him and how we view him, right? So we need to understand the Father's heart. Okay, so uh, one of the main, so... I'll go back to my story. Earlier I talked about the last part. Now I'm going to go a little bit back. Standing in the delivery room. And you guys know this. Well, some of you know the story. You've heard it before. But just to kind of give you some background, we're not following the Lord right now. Me and my wife, we're not even married. We're having this child. We weren't even sure at that point. We didn't even want him. But then we're in this delivery room, and we see this baby for the first time. And I see him, and I am just torn in confusion. And you say, well, what are you confused about? I am feeling things that I've never felt before. Don't even know what it is. Have no idea. It's fuzzy. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. I don't know what it is. I'm looking at this boy. He strangely looks like me. I've never been able to see similarities before, almost as if he's made in my image. <laughs> right? You've seen the similarities here, right? And I'm looking at him, and I don't understand why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. And that's the first time God spoke to me as an unbeliever, and he said, Stefan, the feeling you're feeling is love, and it pales in comparison to the love that I have for you. And I melted right there on the spot. And then immediately pinched my leg because I started crying, and I'm like, I'm not ready for you yet because I still felt I've done way too much wrong to ever be able to receive love like that. But what was he revealing to me? The Father's heart, the Father's love. The love that I was feeling, like, think about what this boy, Austin, had done at this point. Guess how, many, guess how many grades he had passed, or guess how many trophies he had won. Zero. He had done nothing good yet, or bad, really. He had done nothing other than caused my wife a considerable amount of pain. <laughs> so really, his only impact on the world up until now is painful. And yet, somehow, we see this boy... And we immediately see the highest value that we could give to a person. Without ever doing a thing, except for maybe causing some pain. This is what we felt. This is that feeling. We would do anything for him. In fact, it's actually true. Austin was a catalyst for me and Louise both coming back to the Lord. 
He was. Because we wanted what? What was best for him? I remember being in torment thinking Austin should come to church. I want him to know Jesus so that he doesn't end up like me. I wanted better for him than I had had for me. We were fiercely protective over him. Were we broken? Yeah, we were broken. But I'm trying to show something. There was a heart that was given to us, the Father's heart. We were just seeing a smidgen of it. And that's why Matthew 7, Jesus says, if you, if you uh, sinful parents, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who are his children, right? This is a very important thing for us to understand. This kind of gives you context on Romans 8.32. Don't just read over these verses and then go to the next one. Stop and meditate and contemplate. Look at the words used. Look at the heart behind it. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, in that moment in that delivery room and now with the, the birth of all the rest of our kids, I understand this more than I ever did before. Because you would give up anything for your kids, right? You would do anything for them. When they hurt, you hurt. Your love is unconditional. It doesn't matter if they get it right or get it wrong. You burn for them. And this is the Father's heart for us. This is the Father's heart for us. I want you to think about this. God designed you. Think, I, you know, I, I, I was uh, reading, a, I forget which book now. Anyhow, but it was talking about you know, us being formed in Psalm 139, being formed in our mother's womb. And I was thinking about the idea of the, the Trinity, right? You get the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and they're together because all of us were planned beforehand. We were in God's heart. Before anyone ever saw us or knew our name, God knew our name and knew what we'd be like. And I imagine, like, think about the Trinity gathering around and they're planning out each individual person. Do you realize he only made one of you? Sometimes we feel like we have no value. No value? You know, in any kind of collectible, a limited edition has way more value. Amen? You are a limited edition. So limited there was only one of you ever made. <laughs> now I'm thinking about that. Mama always said I was special. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I am special and so are you. God designed you. He made only one of you. You're a special edition. You're a limited edition. He saw every one of your weaknesses. He saw your strengths. He saw every failure you'd ever fail on. Every sin you'd ever commit. Every small success and the big successes, he saw how you would respond to him. And seeing it all. See, you sometimes disqualify yourself because your actions aren't perfect. And our actions do matter. But you disqualify yourself and you pull away from God. And yet God saw all of those things and he still made you. Go back to that verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. This is the passionate love that the Father has for you. He saw all of the good and the bad in your life. And this is the love that he had for you. He that did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? This is the Father's heart. The enemy hates it when people come into a realization of this. Because it's very hard to intimidate someone who feels safe when they realize that their Father is the God of the universe that is sovereign over all things. Because they no longer need to fear. What can man do to me? That's what Romans says. What can man do? What can, what can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? What can separate me when you have that revelation in your heart? Nothing can. 
We're going to look at another picture. Luke, uh, Luke 15, the prodigal. The prodigal son's a great picture of this whole thing. If you want to get the father's heart, uh, there's some beauty in this story. So we'll, we'll start here and I'll kind of lay the, uh, I'll lay the foundation a bit. You have a father and two sons. You have a good son who gets everything right, <laughs> at least on the task list. And then you have this other son, this younger son, he's, he's the prodigal. And basically he's ungrateful. He starts off, he thinks, you know, I already, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait for my inheritance. I want my inheritance now. So he goes to his dad and he asks, can I have my inheritance? And he takes it. And what we find out later in the story, all it says in the beginning is he lived recklessly. We find out at the end that he was giving his, uh, spending his money on prostitutes and partying. So he spends his entire inheritance. He wastes it. Like, think about your, your hearing of a guy who did this. Took his parents' inheritance, took their money, took it from them, and then he goes out and squanders it. Spends it on prostitutes and gambling and partying. What are you thinking about a person like this? Good for what? Nothing. And he ends up with the pigs, actually hungering for the pigs' food, wishing that someone would give him the pigs' food because he's that starving, he's that broke. He has squandered it all, given it all away. And now he starts to long the way I did. Oof, sorry. The way I did, because I, I identify with this side of the story. <laughs> he begins to long to return to his father's home. And he thinks, maybe I won't be accepted as a son, but maybe my father feeds the servants. Right? He feeds the servants. Maybe I can be a servant and just get food and a place to stay. Let's go here. All right. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with my hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say it to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Is there anyone here that can relate to this? You long to come back. But your sins, your mistakes, your, your weaknesses, they're just, they have created such a chasm between you and God the Father. This chasm is, like, it is insurmountable. It is so big. And you have no idea how to get there. But there is this longing inside to get there. Now look at this. This is the father's heart. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Let that sink in. He ran and rebuked him. He ran and said, I told you so. He was angry and disappointed, and so he came to tell him, is that what you read? His father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is exactly what I experienced sitting behind in my car by the industrial park. I had done everything to excuse myself from entering those gates. Everything to prove myself unlovable. And he came with compassion to me. 
This is his heart. By the way, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what you do, it does. But he's chasing for something deeper than your actions. He wants your heart, the heart that he made in his image. He's jealous for it, actually. He longs for it. Look what he says, though. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But look, look how the father responds. His father came out and entreated him, and he said to him, Son, oh, wrong part. Don't. What? I had the wrong, sorry, I missed the slide here. It's all good. Anyways, so, but the father said to his uh, servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and bring and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found, and they began to celebrate. He throws a party. You notice how he still hasn't rebuked him for, Look how you wasted my inheritance. Look at all the bad things you did. And we don't know the whole story. Maybe they address some of that later, and maybe you should make some wiser choices. But what we know is this, he runs, has compassion, he runs, embraces his son, he hugs him, he kisses him, and then he throws a big party for his son that has returned. And then we go, and look now, because there's a second son. The second son comes in from the field, and he hears this party and celebration going on, so he asks the servants, like, what's going on over there? And he says, your, your brother, who was dead, who was lost, he has come back, and your father's throwing him a celebration. Sorry, I gotta get myself cleaning, this is gonna drive me nuts, and you're probably hearing it. Anyhow, they're getting the, uh, <laughs> good thing you know me, otherwise this would be weird. All right. So, second son. He's coming back. What's going on? There's a party. And he finds out there's this party going for his brother, his brother who had squandered absolutely everything. You know how the older brother responds? Indignant. He's angry. Maybe even a little bit offended. Why would you celebrate this guy? Why would you celebrate someone who makes so many mistakes? Why would you celebrate a failure? That's a good question. Why would you celebrate a failure? I think we often struggle with that, don't we? Celebrating a failure? Well, don't we, you don't want to encourage them. So he goes to his father and, and, and comes out, and that's where we pick up here. So he goes to his father and talks to him. I've always done, he has this whole list of things that he's done. I, haven't I always done this, 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 this? And you've never thrown me a party with a fattened calf. Look at his father's response. His father came out and entreated him, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. I want us to pause here and get something that's really, really important that sometimes we can glaze over here. And it comes here. The father shared everything with both sons. And notice he had this tender response to both sons. The first son had given away absolutely everything, had squandered it recklessly. In everyone's eyes, he was a failure. But look at the second son's response. He has been given everything since he was a youth, had been close to his father the entire time. Never had to ask for anything, and instead of gratitude, he's bitter and upset. Because he's, you can see he's measuring stick as what? What he does. I've done better than him, and you're giving him a reward like you've done for me, or even bigger than, than for me. 
Yet the important thing for us to realize is it wasn't based on how good they were, was it? It didn't matter how, how many good things the one did or how many bad things that the other did. His generosity and benevolence and heart was based on how good the Father was. That's the important piece. This is the Father's heart for those boys. This is the Father's heart for you today. He's not basing it on how many good things you've done, the task list, or how many bad things you keep doing it. He's just looking for people that will turn to him. And if you draw near to him, we're told in James that he will draw near to you. So of course the enemy seeks to destroy this picture. So now we're going to look at some of the common lies that he speaks against God the Father. Because he doesn't want us walking in this. When we start to realize that his love and favor for us isn't actually dependent on how perfect we are, although our actions matter. Don't hear me saying that. We're not jumping from one side to the next. We're trying to put the, the right thing right, the first thing first. He wants your heart more than your performance, but your performance still matters. Does that make sense? It still matters. What we do matters. Look at, look at King David. He was called, even in the New Testament in Acts, right, by probably Luke, he was told uh, that the, that. Jesus said that he was a man after God's own heart, right? That God, that's what God said about David. And yet we know David did uh, uh, very many terrible things, really terrible things, adultery, murder, and other things. And he paid for those sins. His actions caused great pain within his own life and within his own family. But yet still, he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because God values that heart more than he does the performance. There is that peace. It has to go in the right order. Okay? So, uh, common lies about God the Father, and this is very important. So, um, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to destroy this picture in each one of us, and he does it often through very natural means. And one of the most natural ways is he's going to try to compare your heavenly Father with what? Your earth, exactly, earthly Father. And you might, now I'm not going to pick on dads here. It, cannot, it can be more than an earthly father. It could be also your mother. It could be a caregiver. It could be a coach, a teacher, someone who was influential in those younger formative years. But the enemy is going to seek to take those who were influential in your life, primarily caregivers, parents, and he wants us to, to now compare heavenly father with earthly father. And so we're going to look at some of those distortions that he uses. Now, I want to make one comment, though. Father wounds, and I've met with many people that have father wounds, they're some of the most difficult ones to overcome. They're so deep-rooted. I believe that one of the reasons is because they directly go against that picture of God in our lives. They make him hard to access for us. When we have those earthly relationships damaged, it makes those heavenly ones hard to access. Uh, Mike Bickle, in a book called Passion for Jesus, which I'll recommend that you actually read. If you want to read it over the summer, it's a great book. Uh, but just part of it that he uses, he actually gave five categories that I'd read in there on uh, five different types of father wounds. So I'm just going to borrow that piece from there and then expand on some of those pieces myself. But um, very important that we understand. This is not about blaming anyone else, right? It's not about blaming our parents or caregivers. It's not about that. It is, though, about recognizing where the enemy has planted lies in our own lives that are keeping us from receiving God's love for us and seeing him for who he is. That, that's really the point of this. So we're going to look at five different types of fathers and then the kinds of wounds that we might be carrying based on our experience with our earthly father. Quick side note, as we go into the first one, passive father, I had a wonderful earthly father. Wonderful. Wonderful. Hey, Dad. I, look at you. 
did a wonderful job loving me, making me feel special and valuable like I was the apple of his eye. did that for me. Not everyone gets that. I don't take it for granted either. However, you might say, that gives you an advantage. Sure it does to a point, but in God's eyes it doesn't. He expects you to respond to the revelation that you have received. Okay? So that, there is a great equalizer in that. But I want you to also consider that God the Father walked with Adam and Eve, and they still sinned. Jesus walked with his 12 disciples, and he had two of them betray him. He had Judas and Peter. Peter came back. Just keep that in mind. This is not about keeping on guilt or shame for the parents in here on, oh, what did I do to my kids or anyone else? It's not about that. Like I said, it's just about identifying where the enemy has spoken lies to us. Okay, passive father. This is the dad who is there, but he's quiet, unemotional, does not get into your life, does not offer emotional support. He actually may give you all of the basic needs. Food, well, they're not all of the basic needs. I'm talking about the physical basic needs. Food, shelter, clothes, right? And a measure of safety, physical safety. You did not have to fear dying in the winter here or dying from mosquitoes in the summer because you had a place to stay, right? So those are physical needs that are being met, but he was emotionally unavailable to you. So he didn't care about the things that, that, that you cared about or the things that hurt you or the things that bothered you. What does that do? Common lies that people believe, these are common. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm just giving us an idea so we can start to move forward on this. Common lies, God doesn't care about my heart. God provides for me, but he's not near to me. And the truth that we find in scripture is that God cares about every part of our lives and hearts, and God is near to me. James says that when we draw near to him, he invites us in first, and when we respond to that invitation and draw near to him, he will draw near to us. You might say, but I don't know how to do it. I'll tell you how. You tell him, God, I want to be near you and I want to draw near to you. And in that moment, he's already drawing near to you. That's the truth. Let's look at the next father. I'm just checking my time. We're all good. The next one is the authoritarian father. This is the dad that says, my way or the highway. You know, he might have been the dad that, uh, and remember, this can be any caregiver, but we're just kind of using the father analogy, that earthly father picture. He, he might have, you know, you'd be talking to him or sharing something that's important, and he'd cut you off right away because what he had to say was more important than what you had to say. Right? When there was a situation, what he felt about that situation was more important than what you felt about that situation. The do's and don'ts in your life mattered more than your heart and how you felt. He's authoritarian, my way or the highway. Common lies that people feel when they live in a home like that, they feel like God is a taskmaster. You know, when we talk about Jesus as only Savior and functional Lord, that functional Lord part, we're like, okay, that's an image of God that I can understand. He is Lord, I obey. And you know what? That's good. I'm not saying that that's bad. It's good to obey God. Even if your heart isn't totally 100% right in it, it's good to obey God. But then when it comes down to this invitation to know and be known by God, they don't even understand the language. It doesn't even make sense. Having a deep relationship, a deep connection, having your feelings and heart matter to God to be shepherded that way is totally foreign. So foreign it maybe doesn't even resonate that it is foreign because they just read it and it means nothing. It doesn't even spark anything. Okay, so common lies though. He just wants my obedience. He doesn't care about my heart. The truth is... God wants my heart over my performance. I keep having to caveat on this. We're not trying to jump from performance-based Christianity to all that matters is that I love him and my performance doesn't matter. It does matter. But he wants your heart first. I'm going to get to an analogy at the end of this that, that kind of helps you see that piece. 
because it does matter. And that's why even that James, draw near to, 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 to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, is also part of that. <laughs> right? So as we draw near to him, we have to cleanse our hands. So if you have bad performance, he says, clean your hands and then come to me. Confess your sins. But to illustrate that the heart is, is important, he already paid the way for your righteous deeds or, or unrighteous deeds. He paid for those actions. He wants your heart. All right. Abusive father. I've met with people who have grown up like this or with an abusive caregiver, and some of the most trapped and tormented people that I've met with have had experiences like this. It's very hard. Damages you, damages kids far more than people can ever try to quantify. Leaves such a scar on them when, when someone who is supposed to love and cherish you treats you harshly like that. But this is the one, the father who's, who, who intentionally hurts his kids physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually. He abuses them. Common lies that people believe when they're raised with a father like this is that God is scary. Not fear of the Lord where you realize he is all powerful and sovereign and holy and righteous and loving. So you're like, oh my goodness. I better stay in line, but you're like, wow, but it's like this awe and wonder and shuddering at the same time. Not that. Because that fear of the Lord I'm growing in, and you know what that fear of the Lord does? It brings me with joy into the presence of God in worship. And it causes me to turn from sin and to confess sin quickly. It does. This is not that. I'm talking about God is scary. I'm afraid to approach him. When it says in Hebrews that we can draw near with true hearts, fully trusting him because he sprinkled our consciences with water, right? When it talks about that going through into the temple, the Holy of Holies, meeting God, that's terrifying. Because God is scary. He's untrustworthy. He'll hurt me. He'll ask me to give more than I have to give. But there's truth in this. God only asks me to give what he gives me first. He says, pick up your cross. He picked up his cross. And he'll walk with you. He did it alone. He'll do it with you. He'll do it with you. He only asks you to give what he's first given you. But there's more than that. He passionately loves me. This is the truth. God is trustworthy. God is my protector. God wants to care for and shepherd my heart. He cares about my heart. He cares about what I feel. He cares about what I desire. He cares about my dreams. He cares about the things that I care for. Then we have the absent father. Unlike the passive father who is there, present, but emotionally unavailable, the absent father, for good or bad reasons, there's lots of reasons why a father could be absent, could have been he passed away, or there was a divorce, or he's working long hours and he just couldn't be present. There's, there's good reasons. Or he could have abandoned you. There's good and bad reasons. We're not talking about reasons. We're talking about experience. So for whatever the reason, your experience was that your father wasn't there for you. So you know he existed because you had to have a dad to be born, but you never knew him personally. That's the absent father. Common lies that people believe when they grow up like that is that God is not with me. I am alone. God is distant. God doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about my heart. Notice how a lot of these are very similar. The enemy has been lying and deceiving and slandering God for years. He's been trying to lie to the human heart for many, 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 many years. And he has perfected the ones that work really well. That's why they seem so common and, and commonplace regardless. But they're a little bit different each one, you'll see. And so here you have that the truth is that God will never forsake or abandon me. God wants to walk with me through life, right? Or wants me to walk with him through life. He wants to be with us. 
That's always been his heart from the Garden of Eden on. God wants to be near me. When I draw near to God, he draws near to me. That is the truth. God cares about my heart. All right. Let's look at uh, the next one here. And that is the accusing father. So the accusing father, this, there's probably a lot of, peop- lot of uh, people that have had an experience kind of in this area. Uh, especially in Christian homes. It's interesting, I was reading this section and it reminded me of something Ted Roberts had said uh, in, in Pure Desire and he talked about how sometimes evangelical homes have been the perfect uh, breeding ground for addiction because you can have really loving homes where parents were caregivers and loved you and were emotionally present. You, had, you did things together, you had fun together. But when it came to things that were con- or perceived as sinful, then it was like a Jekyll and Hyde, right? Anything that was sinful, their parents are so afraid of you going to hell that they want to clamp down and really shut all that stuff down, right? So they demand respect, or they demand you act a certain way only in one area, so they love you and back and forth. Anyhow, Ted Roberts was saying that that's often, uh, uh, you know, the perfect breeding ground for addiction later on in life, but in this case, the accusing father, I want you to think about this is the father that loves his kids, loves being with his kids, expresses love to them, absolutely yes, but then also feels like it's his, it's his job to point out any flaws or failures, because he doesn't want to encourage them down a negative path. He actually wants to point out those flaws to motivate them to do better and to be better in life. You can see how the heart could actually be sincere in this, genuine. And yet, the accusing father often can leave some common lies that I don't measure up. That God only loves me when I do good actions, good deeds. This is a very common one from people that I talk to in, in our area. Maybe it's common in Mennonite heritage. I, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure where it comes from, but I, I hear it all the time. Performance-based Christianity. And it doesn't go, sometimes it leans towards I'm saved by works, but usually it doesn't go all the way there. It's just, I, I get it that I'm saved by faith. So they believe that no matter what they do, they're going to be in heaven. But experiencing God's love, is God pleased with me? Does God love me? Does he want to be with me? Only if I do good things. If I do good things and do enough, then he wants to be with me. If I make a mistake or fall down, then he doesn't want to be with me anymore. He rejects me and casts me off. It's a very, very common thing that people feel, and it keeps us from actually drawing near to God. It keeps us from understanding the difference between a Mary and a Martha. Because the idea of, like, Mary is sitting there doing what? Like, doing what? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Like, what exactly were you doing? You didn't accomplish anything. And remember, the doing wasn't, wasn't the bad thing that Jesus pointed out. He actually, it was the anxiety that was in her that was driving her. So the truth, I'm more than my to-do list. God values my heart more than my actions. You're hearing that come out um, multiple times. Now, to, to kind of close this off and to bring it to an end, it may seem unfair that some had better father, fathers than others. Even on that list. What about those that, were, that grew up in an abusive home? How is that fair? I don't know that I can fully answer all of that, but I, what I do know is God doesn't expect, you know, remember that A, B, C, D, E analogy from years ago? Maybe you don't, you weren't here, but the whole point is wherever you start, if you start on A, what God expects is that you respond to what he re- reveals to your heart by moving towards B. If you start at D, so you had a better advantage in life, God doesn't expect you to do anything more than the per- first person. He expects you to respond to that in faith by moving to E. He doesn't see things the way you and I see things. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's not evaluating by the stuff that we can see on the outside. He's evaluating us by what what we have on the inside. 
that desire in you that wants to know him, but you feel trapped and stuck, he sees that and he cares for you. He wants to meet you in that. So I want you to remember uh, 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. You might be saying, well, now I have these lies in my head about God the Father. What am I going to do? The weapons he gives us to fight with are not the weapons of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds of the mind, built there by deception. But we have to actively engage in renewing our minds in the word and prayer and inner healing and those types of things within the body. Very, very important that we, that we engage our hearts with it. Right? Because we have power, to, or the, the weapons have power to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Right? That's what those strongholds are about. Strongholds of the mind to keep us from knowing God. So I want to leave you with a picture. And this is a picture the Lord gave me a long time ago. And I maybe have shared it here before, but I, have, I, I only have so many experiences in my life, so you're going to hear lots of them <laughs> over and over again. Um, I was at the base of my life, because if we would talk about, you know, I felt like I started being the, the younger prodigal, but then moved towards performance-based, I totally get that. The more you do, the more acceptable you are, right? Which is, you know, you, maybe you can feel that too, so I get that piece. And so I'm in this spot looking at all the performance that I can do for God. And you, you have good days and you have bad days. And you have days when you're ministering and you're doing, oh, and you see fruit. And then you have days you fell into sin or you did something wrong or you just feel dry and empty. And I remember pleading with the Lord for actually a couple of years before he actually gave me any kind of peace on it. But I kept saying, Lord, why don't you just remove these bad things in my life? Like, what are you waiting for? I, my desire is to glorify you. My desire is to give you everything. My desire, like, I don't want to sin. I don't, I don't want to be dry. I want to have that burning heart. So why don't you just do that in me? And after years, literally years of pleading and not getting an answer, he finally gives me a picture. And I don't get pictures all the time, so I remember the ones that I get. Uh, he gave me a picture of me standing in front of a car dealership, looking at this shiny, red, nice, new car. I don't know what kind of car it was, but it, was, it looked fast, anyhow. And he says, Stefan, you want to know what your problem is? You're always looking at the brand new car, and you're wanting, you're wanting that one. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. Look at that red car. It's red. It must go fast. Right? But it's new. My car's broken. I don't even know if it has an engine. Like, I'm pretty sure it's faulty. If we would actually put it on the road, I don't even know that it would drive. I have to get towed around it so bad. You ever feel like that? I'm so broken inside that the only way I can move from A to B, someone would have to tow me. So, Lord, why don't you just, what's wrong with wanting that new car? And I just remember him in the picture. It was like he walked me to the back of the dealership. And I got to see this, like, uh, I don't know what you call them, but it's like uh, those tarp garages. So it didn't even look like a nice garage. So you had this nice dealership with the nice new cars. And then behind the dealership, you had this kind of tarped garage. And in there was this really old beat-up truck. I mean, it was old. Like 1940s Ford old. Right? And it's rusty, and it's missing panels. And this one for sure doesn't have an engine in it because I can see the cavity. And it's totally not drivable. And what you had standing in there was Jesus. He was a mechanic, wasn't using power tools, he had a sander, and he was just slowly and carefully sanding one of the panels. And I just remember hearing the one word, and he just said, Stefan, I am passionate about restoring the human heart. And in there, I got this paradox, I didn't fully understand it, but 
but I somehow felt peace. It's like what I do matters, and it's every time I fall, I need to get back up and confess and pursue him. But he actually loves using broken things to do good things. He gets the glory. Broken pottery. So I'll leave you with this. Galatians 4, 6 to 7, and then we're going to pray and we'll be done. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you, listen, brother and sister, in Christ, you are no longer a slave, but a son or daughter. And if a son and daughter, then an heir through God. Lord, today we ask, as we leave here today, we ask that you would help us identify those distortions of who you are within our own hearts, where we have been believing lies about who you are. And then we ask, Lord, because we're not powerful enough or strong enough to just change our hearts. We can't do that. But today, Lord, we humbly ask and invite you in that you would come in and do that work in our lives. And we tell you today, Lord, that we desire to know you and to see you for who you really are. Lord, would you give us a revelation of how great and wide and long and deep your love is for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.